The shift to a value-based care system requires uh, a paradigm shift by everyone. Uh, that means that uh, both the, the patient, the provider, the system uh, as a whole has to uh, buy into that model. Welcome to Meeting the Minds with Wobot Health. I'm your host, Chris Hemphill. Value-based care shakes up how we administer and deliver mental health care. However, most of the info out there just covers the administration part. We want to focus on the big changes and expectations for physicians, clinicians, the people that are actually doing the work. It's important for everyone, not just clinicians, to understand these changes because it might help inform the policies that you ultimately choose to put into practice. To drive this understanding, we met with Dr. Maria Koshi, who is Chair of Chiefs of Psychiatry at a well-known organization steeped in value-based care, Kaiser Permanente. In Maria's role, she leads over 2,000 psychiatrists and allied health professionals while continuing to practice herself. So her eyes are never off of the clinical experience. She's in it every day. In our conversation, we talked about the culture shock that she experienced moving into U.S. healthcare and eventually into value-based care. We spoke about the impact on clinical practices, the differences between value-based care and fee-for-service environments, and how to navigate other clinicians through that same culture shock. I want to thank the Future of Mental Health, which is a biannual summit for mental health leaders, for facilitating this conversation. So let's get on into it. What can we learn about value-based care from frontline clinicians? We, we've talked about your background in, the, in psychiatry and, and what you're leading at Kaiser Permanente, but I'm wondering about, as, as much as you feel comfortable about sharing, the journey that, that's led you to this place. Why the specific focus uh, on this role and, and within this care model? Well, I spent um, quite a few years in Toronto, in Canada. Uh, before moving to the U.S. And uh, one of the big differences I noted right off the bat when I moved to the U.S. Uh, was the difference in healthcare. Mm. So uh, Canada, as you all know, is a single-payer system. Uh, and as a patient in that system, uh, it was very uh, smooth in terms of entry into the system. You just had, everyone had access to a health card. When you go to the emergency department, you show up at any clinic, you know, everyone takes that health card. Uh, and you can access care everywhere. Uh, versus when I came here in the US, uh, it was very much the first thing you get asked when you go into an emergency department is not what's wrong, it's okay, well, what's your health insurance? And it was such a foreign experience uh, for me. Uh, and uh, you know, I definitely noticed that more when I was in medical school and in residency. So when I uh, was getting towards the end of my training in psychiatry, uh, I looked around and a lot of my uh, peers were going into private practice, going into settings such as that. And I really wanted to be in a clinical setting where I had uh, diversity in my practice, uh, be it socioeconomic diversity, cultural, ethnic, and clinical diversity as well. Uh, and uh, so I knew I needed to be in a large uh, system. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I, you know, was thinking about large systems and what I liked about Kaiser Permanente is that it really does, as a system, we take care of everyone uh, and we're responsible for uh, everyone who prescribes to the helpline. Uh, so it's, uh, as a frontline uh, psychiatrist in Kaiser Permanente, I don't need to think about what insurance my patients have. 
I just practice clinical medicine. And that in itself is extremely liberating mm. uh, on a day-to-day -day basis to be able to practice in that manner. I'm also, you know, on a broad scale, aware of some financial stewardship that needs to happen, particularly when it comes to medications and so on. Uh, but that's, that's a, a, a focus of the practice rather than a focus on the individual patient and what they can or cannot have. Uh, so that's uh, what drew me to KP, that liberate, uh, the freedom in practice. Uh, and what's kept me at KP, is, I'm sure we'll go into it, is, is the added dimension of clinician or physician leadership uh, and uh, the joy that that brings. Excellent. And uh, I, I love your story uh, because I, I really think that anybody listening, that what they hear is you came, uh, to, you, you came from a, a different health system and uh, you said, hey, we could actually be doing a whole lot better than this. At, at the very least, you, you found a way to work in a, uh, in a place that, that, that's enacted the, the type of system where you can thrive as a, as a, as a clinician. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and I uh, have really enjoyed having that uh, broad uh, scope in my clinical practice in terms of who comes into my office. So uh, can you tell us, uh, can you share a bit about the, the role of Chair of Chiefs of Psychiatry and uh, what that puts under your purview? Absolutely. So I'm, uh, I've been Chair of Chiefs of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health for uh, the last three years. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my role, I'm uh, part of the Permanente Medical Group. Uh, we're the care delivery arm of uh, Kaiser Permanente. Uh, and uh, we have about uh, 2,000 uh, clinicians, so uh, MFT, CLCSW, psychologists, and about 400 psychiatrists uh, in Northern California that work at various medical centers in Kaiser Permanente. Uh, and in my role, um, I lead my peer group of uh, physician and clinician leaders mm -hmm. uh, who manage departments in all of those service areas. In my operational role, uh, I get the really fun part of my job is really uh, leading the peer group in designing systems of care mm -hmm. uh, that provide a consistent experience to all our members across Northern California. Uh, that is definitely uh, the mm. fun part of my role. And then uh, the part of my role that uh, is, has been a growing experience uh, is in you know, really getting to dive deeper into the roadblocks that come uh, with uh, trying to deliver care at scale, uh, trying to take uh, evidence-based models that are uh, often develop developed in a controlled environment uh, and translating them into models that can be implemented at scale for 4.5 million people. Ah, I was I was very curious about the number of lives that that you're uh, that that are under your purview. Um, one thing I'm curious about is the opportunity to rise to the occasion for this role. How how did that how, how did you uh, come come into the opportunity to expand that focus into being able to develop de develop these plans and journeys and, and, and translational uh, elements for 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 such a broad population. Well, the, another great thing of working for TPMG, the Permanente Medical Group, is mm -hmm. that, you know, as uh, my needs and uh, capacity and bandwidth evolved, uh, my there were roles that were available to um, help me meet uh, where I was at. So when I started, I was part time, um, only had one kid at the time. Thought mm -hmm. that that was, you know, uh, 
a lot of work back then. Um, I had one kid as part-time, uh, and I was part-time in a full-time in clinical practice. I did the intensive outpatient program and outpatient psychiatry. Um, went through, went, had another kid, um, you know, expanded the brood. Uh, and expanded my bandwidth. Somehow that magically grows as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, got to the stage where I wanted to be a little more involved in developing systems in addition to delivering clinical care. Uh, so I started taking on smaller leadership roles in my local department uh, and then uh, became chief of my local department, did that for a few years. Uh, and then the chair role uh, became available and um, I applied and uh, got the role. Well, uh, congratulations on that, and uh, always happy to hear about, you know, th th there's, there's operating at the, the top of the license with individual patients, but if the, the opportunity comes to expand that focus and take some of these learnings and, and help grow that at a leadership level, that, that's always exciting to hear about, too. It's, uh, and it's a valuable perspective. Uh, you know, one of the tenets of working in this organization is uh, everyone who's in leadership continues to have a pretty significant uh, component of practice as well. Uh, so I'm a leader in the organization, but I spend 40% of my time uh, at any given week in clinical care, direct clinical care as well. Uh, and it's, it's a bit of a, a juggling act at times, but uh, it is so valuable to have that perspective as well because there's a certain level of groundedness that comes from um, that aspect of my job that lets me translate a little better than if I were completely removed. So we're gonna be talking about some, some higher order concepts, but with that grounding uh, uh, within hands-on uh, frontline work. Um, so I know that, that there's, there's a lot of information out there on value-based care and, and fee-for-service and all that. I could refer you to another episode that we did with uh, Antoine Williams on kind of the building blocks around value-based care. In, in your world, uh, like you explained it beautifully about coming here and, and seeing the, the, the biggest flaws in our, in our healthcare system. So what are the main benefits of looking at this value-based care perspective? Well, uh, from a provider perspective, as I said earlier, it really takes that um, tension that often exists in the fee-for-service world uh, for in the provider's, individual provider's hands mm -hmm. of um, reimbursement and looking for reimbursement uh, for individual patients. It takes that tension out of that individual provider's hands uh, and brings it up to uh, my level uh, and higher. Um, and so that is, I think, from a provider's perspective, really helpful mm. um, because the organization as a whole uh, is compensation in a way is also very closely tied to outcomes. Uh, that's also liberating uh, from a provider perspective because the goal isn't necessarily to generate income with frequency of care. Mm -hmm. uh, the goal really becomes about creating throughput in the system so that we can get more people back to their lives sooner. Uh, and so recovery and, uh, and response uh, to treatment really becomes uh, a goal at the individual provider level. And it's a shared aligned goal uh, at the systems level as well because we have clinician leaders like myself who are in the room mm -hmm. uh, for the conversations about designing the system. Uh, from a member uh, perspective, you know, uh, the hope is to instill that confidence uh, that uh, the system's focus is on improving outcomes mm. uh, 
uh, and improving care. Um, and I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about the roadblocks, but um, there is sometimes a dissonance in that perspective from the member's perspective of what is high quality mental health care. Because um, I, I fear that a lot of the language around um, high quality mental health care is related to utilization alone, uh, and it may not be. That's a, a great point, um, especially like it's kind of endemic in the, uh, it's intrinsic to the word that we're, we're describing, right? Is if we say healthcare, that is, uh, that, that, that's the, the word care uh, implies that there's uh, treatment involved. And uh, a lot of times like a high quality, let's call it a health experience, mm -hmm. involves being able to care for issues ahead of time or, or, or take preventive measures so that the, the care element doesn't even have to come into to play. That's right, uh, and that's what the way it should be, where our focus as an organization is on what can we do at scale so that our members don't end up needing to go to the hospital or their emergency room. Uh, and what that means at an organizational level is really focusing resources uh, upstream uh, in primary care, in specialty mental health, in the outpatient space, uh, so that people don't get to the acuity level that they need to uh, access resources in a more acute space. You just mentioned the word uh, upstream in, in that description. And uh, for, for those that, that aren't familiar with the concept, downstream uh, refers to uh, like delivering care in the moment, whereas upstream looks at all the things that you might address that might impact care outside of what's happening in that room. Uh, for example, uh, a term that you hear a lot is social determinants of health, uh, looking at the environment uh, that someone's in, the availability of uh, food, shelter, and basic services, uh, like addressing these upstream issues. Perhaps an, an example might be, um, this, this is one that I heard from, from someone focused on home health, was uh, um, putting an air conditioner in, in someone's house uh, and like a $80 uh, space heater prevent much, much, much greater cost on down the road when that person might present in the ER. For, am, I, am I getting that right with that term? Yes, yes. So upstream uh, can uh, refer to uh, all the elements that are outside of the room where mm -hmm. the care is being provided. Um, we do have, uh, and we're developing systems uh, to really identify where those gaps are mm. uh, for our members and then connect them to community resources where they can access uh, you know, assistance for those elements as well. Uh, I was also referring upstream to um, the, the entire journey because mm. often by the time someone gets to where I'm at, I'm sitting uh, in uh, psychiatry, it, they've usually been suffering and struggling for a while, mm. um, partly because there's, you know, not everyone uh, seeks care early enough, and partly because it takes time for, you know, symptoms to build up to the point that they're in specialty psychiatry. So in an integrated care system, uh, uh, in order to uh, meet that imperative of um, helping our members and patients thrive and stay healthy, it really does involve investing resources further upstream in the patient's journey. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if you show up in a primary care office and you're not, you know, clinically depressed, but you're stressed, 
uh, how easy and accessible is it for you to go from that setting to um, accessing resources that you need? And so we've been putting um, elements in place that make that uh, journey from that setting uh, where it's not acute to the level that you need to see a psychiatrist per se, but you're struggling. And perhaps intervention at that point in your journey may prevent you from needing more uh, services down the road. Uh, so we've been putting you know, systems in place so that that care is accessible and once you access the care that you get um, high frequency uh, care up front uh, in order to get you to response and remission. So, you know, we put in a um, population-based collaborative care program. Uh, 22,000 people have gone through the program. We have remission response rate in the 60%. You know, we can get you better and back to your life as usual in um, six weeks or less. Uh, and that uh, being able to do that and being able to see those results uh, is really fulfilling as a clinician physician leader uh, because it, it meets uh, that imperative that I carry that we need to keep people healthy. So yeah, and, and that that really hammers in on on some of the like I, I love the detailed description on on the on the care journey and uh, where there are elements to impact like you, you were bringing up if, if somebody's bringing up stress. Uh, like what if we start addressing that issue much earlier than it becomes something much deeper? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we, we've been we've been talking about the benefits, but honestly, when, when I when I talk to a lot of people, there there is a lot of fear around uh, shifts towards value-based care, uh, and you know that, that that's that's often extremely valid. Like I, I love the description that you're uh, you're sharing here, but I I wonder about the the types of pressures that clinicians face in these environments and uh, what's unique that, what are some unique challenges that, that people should be wary of and hopefully avoid? Well, you know, the shift to a value-based care system requires a, a paradigm shift um, by everyone. Uh, that means that uh, both the, the patient, the provider, the system, uh, as a whole has to uh, buy into that model. Mm. Um, and um, if you're looking, so value-based care uh, implies that the, the financial uh, reimbursement is really tied to improvement in uh, outcomes and, and response uh, mm. to the treatment. Um, and when you're responsible for um, an entirety of a population, it means that the amount of care that's needed to get to response in someone who's mildly ill is going to look different than the amount of treatment that's uh, needed to get someone who's very ill to response and remission. And uh, there needs to be you know, acceptance, I think, and engagement about that. Uh, because as a, as a frontline clinician, uh, sometimes I do have to deal with uh, ex expectations in the community about what care should look like, and it's often tied to frequency. It's, you know, uh, shouldn't I be seeing you uh, once a month or once a week and so on? Uh, and uh, there are situations where I do see people that often, mm -hmm. uh, but I can't do that for everyone because then the people who are very ill will not have access to my care because there's a limited amount of limited number of providers in the system. Uh, so what, what that translates to is there is an expected, a little bit of constriction in 
perhaps patient autonomy. And maybe that's where the struggle is that mm -hmm. you're uh, alluding to, uh, that people are struggling with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I, kn I know that there are capitated models and mo models where uh, people are, well, like, I, I guess in Kaiser's, uh, Kaiser Permanente's case, it's uh, you, it, it's, it's led by that primary care setting, right? Like, what, I, I believe they call it a gatekeeper model, right? Where uh, you go in, but you can't see a specialist until uh, there's that initial uh, primary care setting. Well, actually, no, we're a self-referral. Oh, my bad. Yeah, no, you can, if you're a Kaiser member, you just pick up the phone and call the psychiatry department mm -hmm. yourself. Uh, you can. You can also get referred to your primary care doctor, uh, but you can self-refer at any point. It does not require referral by anyone else in the system. We were talking about uh, value-based care from, like we're talking about the general uh, area of it and economics and all that. I'm, I'm curious uh, about the unique approach or, or the, the, the unique benefits and challenges in, uh, with value-based care in a mental health uh, perspective? Well, we were speaking earlier about uh, expectations in the community about what mental health uh, is. Uh, one of the specific challenges is there, at least that I've seen, I haven't seen a clear consensus on what uh, the uh, indicators of quality are in mental health. Uh, so different groups have different, you know, indicators that they look for. Uh, if there was consensus around what the quality indicators are for mental health, then as a system and as individual providers, uh, we can set up the infrastructure to measure those quality outcomes. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, definitely a big barrier. What I've seen is, uh, so for instance, you know, if you have cancer, an indicator of a high quality system is mortality rates, perhaps, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, in mental health, um, there doesn't seem to be a, a clear um, strategy around what those indicators of a high quality system are. And in that vacuum, uh, the, a lot of the language is around uh, access to uh, frequency of care. So, uh, it it, it is a, a gigantic challenge, right, to to understand how these quality measures might differ around different sites of care and uh, co uh, coordinate between those sites to have, to have some sort of unified language to say uh, this is the amount of, of concern that we might have for, for, for this group of people. And even the measures. Uh, you know, is there consensus around the measures used to measure depression over time, anxiety over time? Are those, uh, the expectation to report out on those measures, is that being uniformly applied to all systems? So, um, now, it, it's, we know it uh, in, in many, many different health systems, like, I just, they're, they're like from from site to site, there, there's there's major differences, even in the way that data might be collected and labeled. Um, I wonder, like, given this disparity of uh, measures and and how they're interpreted, um, are there uh, uh, systems that, that 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 you've looked at putting it like approaches that you've looked at putting into place to to help alleviate these these issues or or coalesce leaders around? Uh, yes, yeah, so internally uh, within KP, we have a system to uh, measure uh, progress in treatment uh, in care, and uh, we partner with uh, Lucette, 
to allow members to, you know, um, patient-reported outcomes, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so patients get uh, questionnaires that uh, are delivered to them electronically before the appointment. If they're not able to fill it out, then they fill it out in the waiting room. So we've built out the infrastructure to uh, collect uh, those outcomes data. Um, it still requires, you know, efforts to engage patients and members in the importance of um, being or of, uh, providing that information, and uh, it requires that interface between provider and patient to look at that together. Uh, because as a, as a member, if I'm sitting and filling out questionnaires and yet nothing's being communicated back to me uh, about how I'm doing or how that's factoring into my treatment, uh, then I become less invested over time in putting in the effort. So um, there's the systems piece that has to be set up uh, and, and the investment has to be made to set it up. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, the next piece is continuing to engage both uh, providers and patients in the value of collecting the, uh, the data itself. Oh, so I, I, I was just, I could, I could snap and clap here because I, it was just, uh, I like the frame up of uh, if we're going to be asking patients for more data, more collection, uh, we have to have some sort of return, something to, to answer the question, uh, what's in it for me? Exactly. You don't want that, like if it goes into a black hole, mm -hmm. then it just feels like the effort was completely wasted and why am I filling out this uh, survey, this, these same questions over and over again? Absolutely, there has to be a patient interface to be able to see and track your own progress over time. Uh, and, and once you have those pieces in place, then you're able to uh, really see how your system as a whole is doing and the population as a whole is doing. Uh, now, one of the challenges, and this is where what I said earlier comes into play, is if, if we're the only ones doing it and there isn't that expectation out in the community for that level of reporting, uh, then that becomes challenging as well. And this is where I think, you know, uh, HEDIS measures, NCQA, there's, there's all these entities out there that do set quality outcomes expectations uh, for systems as a whole. And I think there's, you know, there's work to be done there. Definitely. And uh, yeah, it, you, you bring up a really powerful point because like I've asked all questions kind of self-contained within, uh, within Kaiser, but uh, there's a whole network of like data only reflects, uh, well, there's data that lives in all these different silos. And even though, yeah, from a technical perspective, it would be, um, it wouldn't be, a, a, it would be laborious to, to connect these sources, but it is possible. But the hurdles that exist are societal it, uh, based on uh, competition and, and our, like our culture of competition. And, uh, you know, we as a large system can make those investments in infrastructure. Um, I can see why, you know, as an individual provider in the community, uh, that's going to be challenging mm -hmm. to be able to make that investment in infrastructure without any additional support uh, or um, a, a level of buy-in into why that would be important. Now, uh, one, one question that I have is... Um you you came into you came into this health system and you saw uh, a lot of the flaws inherent in the system and and found a, uh, a a system that you identify with. I'm curious about other clinicians that like as they're coming in and acclimating acclimating to to this way of of doing business. Are there are there challenges 
that you see from people who've come from other environments and how do you acclimate uh, folks to, the, to this uh, value-based care paradigm? Uh, well, um, I was just uh, doing an onboarding um, session with some of our new clinicians this week. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I really um, talked about was that paradigm shift of uh, functioning as an individual in a large community uh, versus functioning as an individual within a large system that has an entire ecosystem of care. So when you're an individual in the community, you have to be everything for your patient. Uh, when you're functioning as an individual provider in a large system, you have to be strategic about delegating where you can uh, because those resources are available. Uh, so for instance, our ecosystem of care extends from you know, self-care apps and wellness coaching and those resources all the way across to the other end of the spectrum where we have intensive outpatient programs and uh, residential care and inpatient psych and you know, providers embedded in the emergency department. And, uh, where, you know, as a system, we're built to have those handoffs happen mm -hmm. in an integrated manner. Uh, but it requires um, the uh, provider to, sh you know, shift paradigms to not, you know, um, having to be the sole person holding all of the patient's care in their hand, mm -hmm. but to also delegate where possible. Uh, so that it becomes a sustainable uh, practice over time. And that's, you know, the, the shift that I went through when I came here, and uh, one of the challenges is it takes a while to get to know the system mm -hmm. uh, because it is a large system and it's complex and has so many layers to it. Uh, so I was I was telling folks during the onboarding to take your time and learn the system and lean on peers uh, and managers in the system to uh, uh, to identify all of the resources that are available. Not only like it, it's it's not hey, here's a tome that says all the rules and regulations and how these departments connect, but it, it's also about uh, patience and inspiring teams to, to help each other in the moment in acclimating to this, this new way. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've all discovered during the pandemic just the vital importance of connecting to others on your team uh, and how that makes the job sustainable um, because that's we lost a little bit of that when we all went virtual mm -hmm. uh, for a period of time. Uh, so that connection to the team and others uh, around you, particularly in a system as large as ours, uh, is what keeps most people coming back to work. So when you when you look out and, and see the excitement around the uh, value-based care uh, initiatives and movements, what like, what like Again, the, the panel that you're, you're speaking on uh, ask, is value-based care the key? What are some of the kind of hidden things that, that, that you wish people knew uh, that were like more, uh, more known in the discourse? What, what's, what's, what's hidden that people should know about this value-based care movement? I definitely think um, that as a society, we have to buy into the validity of the model for it to work effectively. Uh, it requires engagement at the patient level, provider level, and at a systems level to, in order for the model to succeed. If there's consistency uh, in how we measure outcomes uh, across the system, then, then we can tie that to uh, reimbursement and uh, the financial piece of it. Uh, and then there's incentive for everyone to build the infrastructure needed to measure uh, those outcomes over time and be able to report out on it. But uh, it does require that consistency. Mm. 
in expectations. So the, the big conversations to be had at uh, organizations that might be newer to this are, hey, one thing we should make sure that we're doing is coming together on our metrics that we use to gauge, uh, gauge success or failure. And uh, beyond that, it was one thing to have metrics, but it's another thing to have the infrastructure that actually measures them. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and as I said earlier, it's not just the infrastructure, but then the resources to build the engagement required after the infrastructure is built is really key. Understandable. Um, and like we're, we're, we're thinking from this systems level, I want to get into how you measure success at the systems level, but I'm, I'm very curious, uh, perhaps at the difference in patient response that you've heard in fee-for-service versus value-based care environments. I would say that I can speak to um, patient response uh, just in, in terms of outcomes uh, in our system because we can focus on uh, really you know, getting patients healthy, getting them well, uh, and we're able to put those resources in, we're able to see uh, those outcomes in a very transparent way. Mm. Uh, and we've published um, you know, in, in peer-reviewed journals as well, uh, and really published results for some of our more severe, more ill patients. So people with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and bipolar disorder, uh, those are the populations um, that we do talk about at conferences like this, uh, but those are often our you know, hardest to engage populations and uh, population of patients with lower life expectancy than um, our, our mildly to moderately ill populations. So we are able to see those outcomes because as a system there's engagement in the, the importance of keeping people well and keeping people healthy. Um, in the fee-for-service world, uh, you know, I think what I've heard is once people get into the system, and I've heard there's definitely challenges in finding providers in the fee-for-service system, once people get into the system, the outcome of that uh, is, is dependent on the individual provider, and some people do well, uh, and some people don't. I can say that, you know, from our experience with also uh, working with uh, providers in the community, sometimes we... Uh, you know, have providers who reach out to us and say, um, you know, the acuity level is too high for us to manage. Mm. Uh, and we think this person might be better served, you know, internally in the system. Uh, so when you have siloed practice, it can be challenging to really meet the needs of people who are, who are very mentally ill uh, and who are not able to uh, function well. Uh, so those are, you know, that's the trade-off if you're uh, in a small independent practice. The capacity to manage that uh, can be limited. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing. And um, yeah, an another theme that I've seen at the conference is uh, that there is a significant amount of focus on people in mild to well categories. Uh, but just across, uh, across the broader landscape, they're, they're hoping for more resources and assistance for uh, those, uh, those more severe categories that you were discussing. Yes, uh, and there is value in also putting like resources up front. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think, you know, as a system within KP, as I said earlier, I'm privileged to be able to take care of a whole range. Mm -hmm. Uh, of uh, acuity and uh, a privilege to be able to put resources in to uh, take care of the whole population. So uh, the, the being able to take care of the, the whole population, 
uh, uh, another major theme that, 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 that I'm seeing pop up more and rightfully so is, is around health equity. Um, I, I think a lot of our questions, a lot of the conversation points at a, a better picture for health equity under this model, but just curious about, uh, about your thoughts on how health equity is enacting and, and manifesting in, in these types of environments. Uh, you know, it's uh, when you start measuring outcomes, then you start to see the inequity in outcomes across demographics, uh, across racial um, uh, groups and ethnicities. So when you see those uh, differences, then you get to shape a system that is targeted towards this population of patients. So uh, within KP, we know that if you're African-American, you're more likely to have hypertension, you know, issues of managing hypertension and so on. So we, you know, can focus more outreach on uh, that population. Um, with depression as well, you know, it's, we find that uh, certain uh, demographics uh, and racial or ethnic uh, minorities are less likely to engage in care in a large system such as ours. So it's really, it's, and there's a lot of factors and variables that go into why that is, uh, but it, it creates opportunities for us to look at how we can best tailor the system so that it is more, it, it's safe, it feels safe uh, and uh, approachable for uh, anyone. A major point there too, uh, just because w w like in other models, it might not force these questions to, uh, to, to come to surface with the intensity that it does uh, when it's an outcomes-based approach. Well, yes, and what we're finding is, you know, often uh, the population of providers um, uh, uh, that are in uh, large systems don't necessarily match uh, the demographics of the patients that, who are seeking care. And so we put a lot of effort into uh, training programs. So we're graduating 250 uh, different mental health trainees uh, this year uh, in various different types of licensures. And a big focus of our training programs has been to really encourage and bring in uh, a lot of diversity uh, so that mental health professionals uh, uh, that the demographics of the mental health professional uh, teams, they reflect uh, the patients uh, that we're trying to reach. It's extremely important uh, just to see people coming from, I mean, communities, or at least like in my community, uh, mental health is it's difficult to discuss and uh, highly stigmatized uh, to where, you know, I've, I've been discouraged, uh, from seeking help because of the, the stigma, uh, that might be associated with, uh, with it in, in many cases. So, uh, to start opening the door and from the African American, from the black perspective, if, if, if we see, uh, more people like us who are engaging those services mm -hmm. and also delivering those services, it's been extremely helpful, uh, for, for me and people that are close to me. Yeah, I, you know, come from a similar uh, perspective. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stigma around accessing mental health uh, resources in the South Asian community as well. Mm -hmm. uh, quite a lot of stigma. And um, often patients find me because I speak uh, Hindi and, um, you know, I, I look like them and uh, can understand some of the cultural nuances that come with, uh, you know, their particular stressors. Uh, so I've seen that uh, play out and uh, people travel distances to find providers who look like them or speak the same language as them 
because there's a certain comfort level associated with that. So as an organization, that's an imperative that we have to train the workforce of tomorrow and really source, you know, um, candidates for those programs that increase the diversity of our workforce. Well, I, I appreciate you being candid on um, a lot of these approaches. Like, really, what, what we were hoping for uh, was just a, a frank conversation on uh, what to expect, not, not just focused on the wins, but also what to expect in terms of pitfalls and how to help people, teams, clinicians, physicians adjust to, to this type of environment. One thing that we discussed ahead of time was that uh, we can't solve all the world's problems in, in one podcast episode. <laughs> I know. And if you were, it were that simple, you, you were extremely disappointed that we couldn't solve it all in in, in one episode. I'm sorry, but <laughs> but what if we flip the script and uh, give you a magic power that it can't solve all the problems, but it can solve one problem. Yes. If there was a magic wand that let you solve one problem in how healthcare is delivered, uh, what would that be? <sighs> this is going to sound uh, not very exciting, but it's important, um, and I. I if that, if it could solve a problem, it would be some consistency in how we measure outcomes in mental health across any care delivery system, whether it's fee-for-service, whether it's managed care. Uh, but I think having consistent expectations across care settings will go a long way towards, you know, shifting the paradigm from where we're at today to a more uh, value-based care system in the future. Uh, let's work on building this magic wand because I, I, I think that uh, it is a, that, that it, we can't do it in wand form, but we, we can do it in, in terms of uh, figuring out how to engage people. And uh, like you were talking about earlier, driving that buy-in, driving that reciprocal, like what are, what's being reciprocated? How do I understand my progress over time if I'm being asked for these more uh, consistent measurements? Well, thank you so much for driving the conversation this way. It's, it's just such a crucial part of the journey. Because the more conversations we have, if we don't name the problem, then it doesn't exist. Exactly. So the more conversations we have, the further we get towards that future ideal end state. Well, uh, super happy for you to join us and, and have the conversation as well. Um, and I, I wonder, uh, because there's a lot of people out here who are curious, they want to see this stuff over time and understand how the story evolves to impact and influence the story that they're creating within their own teams. Uh, curious about where people can, can people find you online or uh, are there things that, that you think they should check out to just keep up with what's going on at KP? Uh, well, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I was uh, telling you earlier, I'm not really on any other social media platform, uh, just a little uh, dated that way, but I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, please, you know, uh, send me an invite to follow and I'd be happy to add you and we'll keep talking and continuing this conversation. Honestly, I'm going to date myself too and just say, well, <laughs> honestly, I, I'm on all the platforms, but LinkedIn is the best. Oh, is that right? LinkedIn is the best. You don't you don't need any other TikTok or whatever. LinkedIn. Sure. Like, yeah, you get yes. the best conversations there. Um, but yeah, uh, again, uh, big thank you there. And um, for the folks watching, th thanks for, for taking the time sitting down. I know we, we, it's not, it, we, we intentionally made the subject non-flashy, uh, but we really appreciate uh, appreciate what you shared today. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.